if we all tried to give a little bit of help to someone else, mm. we'd live a lot better, you know, we'd have a lot better life. very warm welcome to this special on the gambling review i am delighted to have two excellent guests on the show to discuss the potential changes placed on the industry by the forthcoming gambling review and joining me on this show is neil channing professional gambler sky poker ambassador and a big part of the betting emporium website where he advises on horse racing and has written several excellent articles already on the single customer view and gambling review welcome neil <laughs> Lovely. Nice to be here, Lee. I noticed you say he's written several excellent articles, apart from one that you hate. <laughs> um, actually, I, I, to be honest, I, I just quickly on that, I know you got a bit upset with my article about single customer view and single customer wallet. I actually found that really weird. Not just you, but like some people on the internet, they seem to be like really angry with me that I'd written an article that they disagreed with. Given <laughs> that we all operate in betting, which is basically yeah. a thing whereby people have disagreements that are settled by money. How could anyone get so upset about someone just having a slightly different opinion to them? It just I found the whole thing quite bizarre. Somebody on the internet said, if Channing has to debate this, he's finished in gambling. <laughs> it's just like, mate, it's just like a tiny part of the gambling review. I just happen to disagree with some other people. I mean... I had an it seemed excuse. a bit melodramatic to me. Too, anyway, sorry. Too, too much gin, too much gin that, that night for me. But anyway, we'll get on we'll get on to that later in the show. And also joining us as well, I'm very pleased to have him on the show, is Matthew Rushton, who is head compliance officer at BetConnect. And it's an honor to have you on, Matthew, because we don't get many compliance officers on podcasts or, or writing their views on all this. So welcome to the show, Matthew. Yeah, thank you very much, Lee. And it's a pleasure to to share the platform with yourself and Neil. Hopefully. This won't be my last appearance on a podcast, and I won't be scared off too much. Uh, <laughs> nah, the first, you might be the first and last. Officer. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, I'll still have a job after this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, let's, let's start with you, Matthew, because I think a lot of our listeners sort of understand sort of what's going off in a nutshell, but a, a lot are sort of concerned by sort of handing over their, their data, or they don't. They, they just want to be left alone. A, a lot of them who, who I speak to. So, can you tell me a bit about yourself and how your job? operates going on to sort of like triggers or software that you use to identify potentially gamblers with harm could you like elaborate on that please yeah sure so i think when it comes down to customers having to provide documents there's probably three main areas where we would need to request documents and that would be the initial kyc so need your driving license and your utility bill and that's to just verify you are who you say you are when it comes down to anti-money laundering checks, so in that case, we're looking to make sure that the money that has been deposited into your betting account comes from a legitimate source. It's not the proceeds of crime and that there's going to be no sort of repercussions of accepting that money. Uh, and then the third one would be affordability, which isn't a, a regulatory requirement at the moment, but obviously a lot of operators are looking at affordability at the moment. It, it's a big topic and that's where we want to make sure that the money that you're depositing into your account is uh, affordable and sustainable. So when customers register with us, we have various different triggers that would highlight a customer that we need to review. And some of those triggers vary. So whether you're a new customer, whether you're a, uh, an existing customer, 
whether the, the money has been spent within the first sort of 30 days of the account. We obviously want to see you much quicker than somebody who's been with us for a couple of years. But really what we're trying to do is just establish whether or not we're comfortable with accepting money from those customers, because we've seen what happens when it goes wrong. There's, yes. there's fines and no customer is worth more than the license of the operator. So it's important that we do get those documents and we do conduct those reviews. Okay, so what sort of triggers apply? Because, I mean, referring to Betfair, I've been pulled twice in the last year. Obviously, long-term use, the account's been open since 2003, accounts in profit. What kind of thing would trigger a review? Can you give like a common example of what would trigger a review? Is it spending habits or deposits? or? So for AML thresholds, it's more likely going to be a financial threshold. So again, it's. I think the, the problem is, is that there's no universal trigger for all companies so you've got some companies which will let you spend for example i know two thousand pounds a month before you trigger for a review there's others that might let you spend a thousand pounds a month there's others 500 the triggers are just so varied from company to company that it actually makes it really difficult for customers to know where they stand because why am i being asked for documents when i've only spent 500 pounds in a month when with another operator, I've spent ten grand and I haven't been asked anything. Yeah. So for the for the AML triggers, it's purely financial based. So a trigger that you may have in place is okay when a customer has deposited, so not lost, but deposited twenty thousand pounds in a year. We want to see that customer because we want to do some due diligence. And the initial due diligence that would be done on a customer is looking at adverse information. So if I put Let's use Neil, for example. If I put Neil Channing into Google and the area that he's from, am I going to see an article that suggests he's been involved in crime in the past? Let's if hope not, you. I've got all them <laughs> off the net now. <laughs> <laughs> if not, then then fine. You're conducting a, a review and you know that, okay, there's nothing hugely adverse about Neil that's on the internet, so well, then the account's you. fine to continue. <laughs> Um, so what about affordability? What triggers affordability checks at BetConnect? What kind of sort of behaviour would trigger an affordability review? Yeah, so when we're looking at affordability, some of the triggers that may come up is where customers are spending a lot of time on site. So they're active during the early hours of the morning, which can be a concern. We also look at deposit information. So if a customer tries to deposit a large amount of money, let's say £500, and they then it declines and then they try and deposit 450 and that declines and then they try to deposit 400 and that goes through that could potentially suggest that they don't have the money to be spending on that account so that would trigger we look at increases in uh, average bet stake so if somebody's average stake over let's say the last six weeks is 50 pounds but all of a sudden that goes up to 200 there's been quite a significant shift in that customer's behavior because it's always been £50. It's been £50 for a long time. Why is this shifting into 200 So that won't necessarily trigger an affordability check, but it will trigger us to interact with that customer. And based on that interaction would be where we then request documents on the back if necessary. This all seems quite sensible to me. <laughs> I mean, because obviously, having dealt with Betfair, who were just absolutely bizarre with me, this seems relatively acceptable. A- an interaction with the customer first, and then, like you say, if any, if any further checks are needed, then if you deem it prudent, you're sounding rather sensible. 
well, this is where I might lose my job if everybody else is doing something different and we're taking this approach. But I, I think the, the interaction with the customer is key. And, and what's missing in a lot of companies is people who understand betting and understand punters. And where that's missing is you've got people who will phone a customer. They're essentially reading a script. And if this, then that. So if the customer says this, you respond with that. Whereas what we try and do is, and I'm, I'm sure Neil can attest to this, is BetConnect is full of people who do gamble. So it was founded by a professional gambler who was fed up of not getting his bets on. So wanted to find a solution to be able to get bets on for other people. So when we're talking to customers, it's, it's a discussion. Okay, so it's Neil, your average spend over the last few months has been two grand a month. Where does that money come from? How much are you earning? Is it affordable? And if Neil turns around and says, oh, I work in Tesco and I earn a thousand pounds a month, but he's been spending two thousand pounds a month for the last six months. There's obviously something missing there that we're not quite aware of. And that is where requesting additional documentation would be needed, because how is Neil getting this extra thousand pounds a month that he's spending on our website? Could it be the proceeds of crime? Could it be he's spending beyond his means and he's been taking out loans to fund it or he's borrowing money from friends? And that is why you would have to request documents to, to establish exactly what is going on. Now, I understand that for bigger companies where you've got I know hundreds of thousands of active customers, it's not always easy to have those conversations and you do have to bring in a bit of automation to be able to do it. But it still seems to have gone too far with certain customers who are just running into difficulties with these companies and having their accounts restricted, their withdrawals held until they provide documents. I think that's where it's just gone above and beyond what is expected of the, the operator. I, no. I think a bunch of the problems are, are communication, aren't they, really? I mean, I spoke to Betfair. I've gone through this process with Betfair. I've refused to send in the documents and they've limited me to a set amount I can deposit. But, you know, I've had an account there since 2001. I actually had different accounts. I had one got hacked and I had a problem with a different account. So I've, I've had about four different accounts with them. But, you know, they've got all the details there. First of all, they do a thing that I think is really bad, which is they'll quite often just ring you on an unknown number. And then they'll, they'll suspend your account if you don't answer the phone call. Well, who the hell in this day and age answers to an unknown number? Like, why yeah. can't they just email you and say, right, someone's going to call you at three o'clock in the afternoon at this on this day. And if you want to keep your account, you better answer it. I said to the guy, one of the directors that I said to him, what percentage of people answer those phone calls? And he said, oh, about 2%. So it's a, it must be a huge waste of time for them. And for an average guy who works in an office, you don't want to be answering random phone calls at any time that could come at any time of the day to a bookmaker. You might not want your missus to hear. You might not want your boss to hear. Whereas if you've got an email saying, you know, we're going to be calling you at this time, at least you can step out of the office or something like that. And also the whole thing with the Gambling Commission, and I've spoken to a few different operations, they said to me, there's no real kind of set rules for it. They give you guidelines and then they fine you if they feel like you're not doing it properly. But no thresholds are set. I mean, I personally, my view is quite clear on the whole gambling review. I don't think there should be affordability checks. I think they've easily got enough information on the customers to not need to do that. It's a sledgehammer to crack a, a nut. You know, we're down to 
on latest figures, 0.2% of the population are problem gamblers, and we're going to ruin the experience for everybody else, 99.8%. But I mean, if you are going to do it, one of the good things that could come out of this is at least the companies will know where they stand. They'll be able to have set procedures and the procedures will be the same with each company so that you don't get bad treatment from one and better treatment from another. You see, that actually worries me, Neil. The reason being, we're dealing, like what Matthew said, the lack of expertise at the top table. You know, like for example, somebody like yourself, you know, putting somebody like yourself on board of the or advisory to say the Gambling Commission on matters like this, potential pitfalls of the, of the, of the measures that they want to introduce, etc. I find that worrying because for me, if you have set rules, for example, we probably have betting banks, well, we do have betting banks. And the, the, the problem is with that is I don't have a job, so I can't produce any income. I, I can produce my assets, but I can't produce an income. And the problem is if, if I want to put 50,000 in play, say in Betfair or whatever, the affordability team, if they come into the guidelines brought in, it's not going to cover people like us that maybe want to put a sizable amount in play because it's kind of, well, can you afford to do that? And a recent example of that is a friend of mine that, that plays on Betfair statistically. He uses uh, some algorithms and he was running quite low. And so he, he put a large deposit in and that's when the affordability team got in touch with him. He's on a job that's about 50,000 a year or something. And they restricted him to, um, I think it was 1,500 pounds a month deposits. The problem with that is whenever the, the, the bank gets low, he's having to top up on bad runs, 1,500 a month, but he can't mm. put the whole amount in because they won't let him put the whole amount in. So you still, there are problems even, even with that. Oh, no, I totally agree. I mean, that's why I don't think there should be just think the whole affordability check thing is just ludicrous and ridiculous. And it doesn't for, for all the libertarian arguments, you know, we don't do it in other forms of spending. Why should we do it in gambling? There's, you know, there's a creeping thing going on here. The gambling's becoming somehow socially unacceptable when it's a perfectly legal activity enjoyed by a lot of people in the population. If you are going to do it, I think there shouldn't be a situation where if you play with this company, they're quite relaxed about the rules and give you a slightly easier time and a bigger threshold. But if you play with this company, they're real sticklers and they ask you for 10 times as much paperwork and then they give you a very low limit. That can't be the the way for it to work. There there has to be kind of a set thing. I mean, I totally agree with you on the Gambling Commission. I, I kind of feel like at the end of this process, the Gambling Commission will probably get a little bit more money and probably a load more powers. And I've got no real faith in them. I, you know, people tell me that you can't work for the Gambling Commission if you've worked in gambling before. Absolutely. Which, which is just ridiculous. Now, I understand they feel like they don't want people working there who are kind of sympathetic towards the bookmakers. But it just means they've got so many people there that just don't really know what they're doing, I think. You, you can't really change the culture within the gambling commission by just throwing money at it. And I think it does need a change in culture. In terms of the whole triggers and stuff, I I, I see, I don't even really like that that much. I mean, I I got at least six letters from, uh, email letters from Betfair during Cheltenham week asking me, you know, whether I was all right because I was gambling more than usual. You know, it's Cheltenham week and you're Betfair. You, you should really know why people are gambling more than usual. I understand that that's just a, a set thing that's sent out because I've deposited more than the week before or bet higher stakes or whatever, but it still seems ridiculous. 
Yeah, I fully agree with what you said there, Neil, with, when it comes to the Gambling Commission. I, mean, I, I personally, in the past, would have liked to have worked for the Gambling Commission because I, I would have liked to have made a difference. But when you look at some of the roles that they have available that would be similar roles to me, I mean, they recently had a compliance manager position at the Gambling Commission. The, the salary is £32,000 a year. Now, if you go into most bookies, into their head offices, £32,000 a year will probably get you a a good sort of KYC analyst, whereas you're looking at compliance managers, you're looking more towards the fifty to sixty thousand pounds a year mark. And I think that's where they're they're going wrong is that their predominant recruitment pool is just ex police officers or ex civil servants who want to top up their pension and do a job which they can just tick over in. And that's what they're attracted at the gambling. That's basically what I think as well, yeah. Rather rather than actually going, you know what? look at the industry why do people want to work for the industry over the gambling commission well because they pay a lot more and you would hope that that would attract more intelligent people who know the gambling industry who know it inside out who can do a a pragmatic review of a company and, and make changes but what we've got is the complete opposite yeah neil how have we got to this point like since the innovation of Flutter, then Betfair, the exchanges and and person to person betting and this online revolution where you've got great offers from bookmakers and it, it was a fantastic time to be alive for anyone that enjoys a bet and doesn't come to any gambling harm. But how have we now ended up? in a situation <laughs> such as this where it's probably easier to buy buy drugs than get a bet on? Well, I mean, in terms of account restrictions, parking that for a second and just talking about, you know, the affordability stuff, I guess what's caused it all was the FOBTIs, really. I mean, the FOBTIs has cast the industry in a bad light. And, of course, the industry, that's their own fault. They should have realised that. They could have seen that a long way out. They went for the short term. You know, when they started opening three shops in the same street with four machines in each shop, they were just taking the piss. The government weren't going to stand for it in the long run. Not so much the government. It was just that, I guess, MP post bags became full of people, you know, sad cases. And, and, and of course, it was terrible. I think most people in the gambling industry didn't really like the FOBTIs. But I, I guess once the gambling reformers were successful with the FOBTIs, it was inevitable they were going to move on to look at other things. And it is illogical that you can only bet two pounds of spin in a betting shop but you can do pretty much what you like online and i appreciate that it's a slight barrier to sort of have to go and open an account online and deposit money and whatever it might stop somebody from doing something super rashly out of character but if you're an addict you, you you're going to do that i don't know i mean i, I if, you know from a political point of view if you're an average mp most mps don't gamble and don't really care much about gambling there's more votes in saying that you're trying to save vulnerable people than trying to save multinational corporations, most of whom don't pay tax in the UK. Yeah. On to the next topic then, which is the solution, in, in other words, that the industry is, well, the Gambling Commission has, has sort of come up with the single customer view. What are the pluses and minuses with single customer customer view? Do you want to go first, Matthew? I think you've been quite vocal on this. I've read your article, so I'll let you start and I'll, uh, I'll join right, well, I, I mean, single customer view is basically the idea... One of the big downsides, like if they bring in affordability checks as a thing throughout the industry, one of the big downsides for the consumer is that you've got to go through it with every company that you've got an account with, which is obviously a pain in the ass. And one of the big downsides from the industry point of view is that 
if I go through the process with, I don't know, say Betfair, and they give me X a month that I'm allowed to deposit, you know, I could just get around that by opening accounts with a whole bunch of other companies and getting a limit from them. And if I was a problem gambler, um, that's probably what I'd do. So I can see how single customer view can slightly solve that because if all the operators kind of pool their resources, the checks only have to do once, be done once. So that saves them an absolute fortune with all these compliance people and, uh, you know, all this paperwork going back and forward. And from the point of view of stopping people from problem gambling, they can set a limit for that customer across the industry. And that'll be great. The main downside, is it possible to do it? Are you going to be able to have a real time accurate idea if i if i'm given a limit of i don't know 1500 a month across the whole industry what that i'm allowed to spend is it going to be possible for me to quickly go and deposit 1500 with three different companies in less than a minute without them realizing i'd have said yes i I'd have said i mean I, I think that's a very difficult problem for them if they want to get a situation where i can't do that that's going to cost a lot of money and i think it's going to be almost impossible to do and i think you wrote about that lee if they can't deal with that problem well then they've got two issues one is genuine problem gamblers are going to feed their addiction by making multiple deposits to different places and secondly fraudsters are going to pretend to be problem gamblers make multiple deposits to different places and if they lose they just turn around and say i'm a problem gambler you've got to give me my money back and these companies would be so scared about getting fined by the gambling commission they probably will give them their money back so it's very open to exploitation from either problem gamblers or fraudsters and the other thing is like who makes the decision who who decides how much some of these things are quite subjective i know you've said it a few times i've heard you say it before lee about your personal situation and i totally take your point there are many hundreds of people in the country who gamble either for a living or as a sort of side income that maybe don't have a regular job or a normal kind of income, but they have capital, you know, people that maybe have winnings from past gambling, if they've been doing it for years, or, or some people that are, you know, maybe semi-retired or they've inherited or whatever. And the gambling companies have decided when they're doing this kind of thing that it's income they're interested in. They're not interested in wealth or capital. And I just think that's making a kind of moral judgment. Like, for example, if, if I'm a bit of a skint student, and I just bet in fivers. And then one day my dad, the Earl of somewhere or other dies and I inherit <laughs> five million and I decide I want to start betting in a thousand pound a race. Well, that's up to me, isn't it? You know, I, in my opinion, I don't think that the gambling company should say, well, unless, unless I've got some kind of rental property income coming in every month, which presumably I would have if I inherited from the the earl but whatever you know if i've got no actual income but i've got a shitload of money in the bank i should be allowed to gamble that it's my money so i I don't think they should be making subjective opinions and even a a less extreme case than that just for a normal guy you know if someone's earning 40 grand a year who's to say what a correct amount that they are allowed to deposit each month some people like spending money on going to the buying expensive trousers whatever other people don't. If, maybe, maybe if gambling is your main hobby and your main thing, you just want to spend more of your income on it. And I don't think it should be up to the government to decide that. Absolutely. Matthew, anything to um, interject there? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the point that you're making on the single customer view and, and the fraudsters and depositing £1,500 into three different companies at once would, I think, be difficult. I know that 
Gamstop have got the trial to look at the single customer view. And at the moment with Gamstop, pretty much every click on an operator's website sends another ping to Gamstop to see if you are registered with them. So if you did, for example, log into an account, deposit money, register with Gamstop, place the bet, and then try and claim, well, at the time I placed the bet, I was registered with Gamstop. When you're clicking buttons, that's sending pings via an API to them. So I don't think that would necessarily be a big issue. And I think it's quite easily solvable when it comes to the the single customer view. The single customer wallet feels a bit more workable, but I think what people forget is the banks probably have a bigger role to play in this than they're being given given credit for. I think the banks are the only people that have a a good understanding of your your income, your outgoings, how your wealth has been accumulated, what amount of time it's been accumulated over. And I think they probably have a, a key role to play in making affordability work. Yeah, I, I kind of I kind of see that. Just on the on the wallet, because I know I wrote about that and upset you, but there was one thing <laughs> I wanted to say. You know, I've made it fairly clear from time to time that I don't really trust the bookmakers with all the info that you're being asked to give. I don't really believe they'll store it safely. I don't know how long they're going to keep it for, who that works there will have access to it, what kind of checks are being done, you know, behind the scenes, like soft credit checks and whatever. They don't make it very clear. And that kind of information, it's the sort of information you need when you buy a house. You don't need it when you buy a car or anything else, really. So I just think mainly, apart from the civil liberties and freedom kind of stuff, is I don't trust the bookmakers. But the idea that if you build some kind of new organization as a sort of single, you know, to operate the single customer wallet, now whether that be a kind of a Skrill net teller organization or whether it's sort of like an ombudsman that also takes all the money and deals with all the financial transactions, I don't really trust that any more than I trust Denise. I think I'd rather trust Denise actually out of the two because at least Bet365 have been going for or whoever, you know, bookmakers, I mean, you know, I'm using Denise as a generic for bookmakers. I trust Betfair and I trust Bet365 and I, bet, I trust the big bookmakers probably more than I'd trust some new entity that got set up that turns out to be run by, you know, Dido Harding's cousin or something. <laughs> you know, well, it will be like that, won't it? I mean, if there is some kind of new entity set up, it will be a friend of somebody in the government that is in charge of it. And that's my main issue with it. And I mean, also just think having like one place where you deposit all the money it's a lot of money there's about 150 billion a year deposited with all the operators that have a uk license that's a shitload of money for one company to handle and it's effectively to be just given a, mon- a monopoly really you not know ne- not I, necessarily because you could have like several different wallet providers so skrill net tele PayPal, oh, um, okay. and that's how it works so they would advertise their own gambling wallet I mean, there aren't that many of them, are there? I mean, PayPal don't really like gambling, do they? They kick you off if you're involved in gambling. And also, you know, PayPal, you just got to do a quick Google and you'll see the stories about them withholding people's money for no real reason. I'm not saying PayPal would be the the one, but I don't know. Like, I think Skrilla in Ireland, PayPal are definitely not in the UK. There isn't one in the UK, is there? So, again, do we want to give all this kind of power and money to some overseas entity? to control the UK gambling industry. I think you'd have to set something new up if you were going to do it from scratch. And I, I don't really see the government doing that. No. We obviously 
disagree a little bit on the SCW and SCV. I'm same as you, Neil. I, I would like really nothing to be implemented, really. Just going back to what Matthew said at the start, it's just refreshing to hear someone with just that little bit of common sense about interaction with the customer. Like, like you said, not not the three rings you get from Betfair and then they suspend your account and then you've so got just to... to be, just quickly, just to be fair to Betfair, after I had that conversation with the guy, they've actually rehired a bunch of the people that they laid off. Oh, right. uh, in in order to have people that I don't know whether when you went through the process, Lee, but a couple of friends of mine that went through the process said the most frustrating thing they found was that you could never talk to a real person and that you had to use the chat thing and it was impossible to just have a conversation. And they now for the kind of bigger customers, they have, I think, six people that are kind of available to speak to about it. It just makes so much difference just to feel like someone's explaining what's going on and what the reasons for it are and what you need to do. I, I don't know. I just Sometimes you just feel like you're dealing with a huge corporation and they've got no interest in you. Yeah, I actually felt like a bit of a criminal. Really what you mean. And like you're one of their best customers that's been there for 18 years. I mean, it's ridiculous, really. Yeah, the, the, the amount of commission paid. I mean, obviously people pay more commission than I do, but it's large. It's very strange stance they actually took with me. I lost my account for about a month. The first time it was suspended, I actually did comply and send in the documentation they required. Then it was lifted. But it's interesting what you said about the Betfair have rehired some former employees because the second time it happened, I was reinstated very quickly. And then I got put in touch with a person, you know. The, yeah, bet manager or something. Yes, like and he actually he actually chatted with me and then sent me a lovely, lovely email saying... I mean, any, to be fair, I think they have got better they their procedures have improved and obviously they had a huge backlog which because you know but the thing is if if, if it, say affordability came in at 100 pounds i don't think it will but say it did that's going to be like multiplied by 100 the number of people going through it and they're just not going to be able to deal with it yeah going back to you as well neil when, when you said about you sometimes you wouldn't trust bookmakers to handle the data properly and we've seen that in certain instances where punters are, are having to take bookmakers to court because yeah, they're absolutely to get money out of their account because they're refusing to supply sensitive documentation. Um, yeah, I mean, that's another criticism of the Gambling Commission as well. The Gambling Commission, I think it was 2019, issued a kind of diktat to operators to say, you, you can't withhold somebody's money if they don't provide paperwork, KYC and AML paperwork, at the time that they want to withdraw their money if it could be said that you could have reasonably asked for that information earlier. So effectively, they have to get that information when you first open the account. And if they don't, they can't use that as an excuse to withhold your money when you win. Yeah. No one's ever been fined for that, as far as I know. No, and that's it, it, going on, that stuff's going on all the time. It is. It's a disgrace. And that's the one thing that then you lack of trust. I mean, we talk about bookmakers and punters having a relationship and customer loyalty, etc. And, and I think that should work both ways. You know, a customer that bets with, say, one particular firm more than operator than, than, than others, that should be respected by the operator. But the other way around as well. And I feel that the, the operator's on this have, have had a lack of respect for the customers so far that's why getting matthew on the show this is quite good because that's possibly how bet connect are currently operating i think that's a good thing to to chat to your customers it's kind, and, of, it's kind of easier for bet no no offense matthew but it's kind of easier for bet connect because there's not this adversarial relationship you know if you're a punter with bet connect it's a bit like being a punter with betfair where bet connect hold the money and people play against each other 
and BetConnect don't really care who wins and loses. It's slightly different from Betfair in that respect. But if you're a customer with Labbrooks or something, they want to beat you, don't they? So, uh, you know, it's not a loving. No. Just going on to on SCV, the fact that this, from a legal aspect, could be quite interesting down the line. What I find interesting, say Betfair, they deal with a third-party data company in Leeds, and that's where your data ends up. And then their terms and conditions are totally different from Betfair's terms and conditions, which they can keep your data, I think, for 10 years after you've closed your account even. So you close your account or you've had your account closed. They have got your data for 10 years and can use it. They can share it. They can sell it. They can do whatever they want with that. Mm. Now, I know like some government ministers have said they've, they've had their lawyers check with the um, data protection laws and, and SCV is, you know, they seem totally fine with it. But as we know from legal standpoints that you've got to, you've got to have every box ticked on this. And we saw it happen with Cambridge Analytica. And this is the thing that bookmakers and operators could be in for some horrific potential fines down the line if they've not followed the letter of the rule absolutely 100%. Would you agree with that? I'm not really, a, you know, I don't like any of the things. I don't like SCV, I don't like SCW. So I'm not just bashing single customer wallet because you happen to like that, Lee, just to have a go. <laughs> um, but, if, if you know, if you do single customer wallet, presumably the, the wallet operator would do all the checks. They'd do the anti-money laundering and the KYC. Yeah, so And the bookmakers yeah. wouldn't do any of it. No. Well, that causes a slight problem because at the moment, if the bookmaker or operator, or whatever you want to call them, screw up with the anti-money laundering or the KYC or, or well, those two things at the moment, because those are the legal requirements, then technically there's a sanction. You could They can lose their license. If the single customer wallet operator messes it up, you know, do we have to make them... I think they have to be licensed. See, this is why I don't think you could have like loads of different you know, Skrill and Netteller and whatever all competing against each other because I think they'd have to be licensed by the Gambling Commission in order for you to have some kind of sanction against them if they mess up. If they get it wrong in an anti-money laundering case, the government needs to be able to take away their license. And if there's only one single customer wallet, well, how do we get our bets on that if they've lost their license? Yeah, um, I, I, I do take your point there. You know, it's kind of, like I say, it's far from far from perfect. It's, in, all, it's in, very complicated. The other thing is, uh, on the single cost wallet, I think the banks would, uh, if the government gave a monopoly to one entity to deal with such a vast amount of money and data, I think they'd get sued by the banks. Yeah. I think in that case, the banks need to, to step up. I mean, they, they've done bits around providing blocking for gambling transactions and, and things like that. But everybody who has a bank account has gone through some kind of due diligence to be able to open that bank account. Yeah. You're going to be linked by your credit record because that'll show the bank's bank accounts that you use. So why can't there be some kind of database? You know, like, I think it's, is it CIFAS, which is the, the fraud database? That's cross-sector fraud sharing databases where that's reported on your, your credit record as well. Why can't banks step up and actually build something which gives one customer, no matter what bank you're using, it gives one customer an affordability limit that they can only use no matter which bank they use? Because, I mean, it, it doesn't feel like as much as, as much as 
both of you guys maybe don't want affordability to happen. I, I think the reality is it is going to happen. It's just how bad is it going to be? So the banks probably hold the, the most data on people. They've got, like I said earlier, they've got previous history with customers. They've seen how your wealth has accumulated. They've seen transfers in and out of your account. They already got everything and you already trust them because mm. you're banking with them. Why not let them run? That's a very good point. And industry? I don't really know why that hasn't happened. I mean, just quickly on something you said, though. It's another thing people have got a bit angry on Twitter with me about. Um, several people seem to be obsessed by the fact that I'm saying I don't want any kind of affordability checks, suggesting that I shouldn't really make that argument because there already are affordability checks and they're not going to go away. Well, that just seems a bit ridiculous to me because if this is supposed to be, you know, the biggest gate debate in the into the future of gambling for a generation, I'm not allowed to make my case for how I'd like it to be now. Well, when am I going to be? It's true. I, I don't really think that. I'm going to win this argument. I think there will be affordability checks of some sort. But I'm going to damn well have a go at winning it until it's until it's law. And I don't see why that would be a controversial viewpoint, really. But I think you're right. I think I think affordability will come in. It may come in at a much higher level than people think, though. I think I'd be surprised if it's less than 2000 a month, which for 99% of punters, it probably won't make any difference to them. To be honest, I, I've had this discussion with a few, few sort of like full-time players and We'd all be comfortable around that sort of level, you know, because we can build our banks if we've had a rough run and we need a top up, fair enough. But we, over time, we can can live with that and build up steadily and and deposit when we need to. Some might choose just to deposit the two two grand every month or whatever ever limit set. But I think some of the the numbers being banded around you know, hundred pounds a month, etc. And I think I'm absolutely amazed by that, those sort of figures. But do we think there's a case, chaps, for segregating games of skill to games of chance? I a game of chance is obviously set towards the operator because obviously the, the the percentage profit is, there's, there's there's definitely an argument for it. I mean, obviously, you know, you can't beat roulette in the long run, however, whatever you do assuming the wheel's straight and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And of course you can be a winning sports punter or a winning racing punter. And so it kind of, yeah, I mean, it kind of seems like a neat argument to say, well, these things should be treated differently. I think, to be honest with you, DCMS and the minister are not really going a lot on this argument. I think some people within the debate think that the racing industry as a whole and racing punters are a bit arrogant if they feel like they can make the case that they're just cleverer than other punters and, and you know, it's not harmful for them because you can win at it. You know, the facts are that 97% of people still lose, even though it's possible to win. And it's a bit disrespectful, slightly. I mean, I'm not saying that, but there is an argument that it's a bit disrespectful to the families of people that have taken their life because of problem gambling on sports and horses to say that these things are not harmful. The other thing is that there's a massive crossover. Um, I've got some stats on that. 25%, roughly 25% of people, just just under, who play on sports and horses play on something else as well. So not necessarily casino or slots. It can be poker, which is quite a big component of that. I think if, if it was only slots and casino, I think it's something like 14%. So, but it is quite a big crossover. Obviously, the operators don't want it to be split up because a lot of what they're doing is trying to cross-sell to people different products. 
and they have built their sites as one-stop shops and that's why they've become successful you know one of the reasons that people like bet365 so much is because you've got everything there and they give you good value on all different things and lots of their customers just don't have an account with anyone else they're good customers they do all their betting there and and obviously that from an operator point of view you know if you know that you can sell various products to people and keep them on the site longer but the value of the customer goes up and then you can spend more money on advertising and promotion and whatever if you weren't allowed to do that all of that would have to change which would be bad for a lot of parts of the industry i think probably the government when they started this whole process thought it was going to be a lot easier than it is and this is an area which they just decided was a bit too complicated but of course there's a big argument for it it's much less addictive playing on horse racing than playing on, you know, where there's one race every, well, yesterday, every three minutes. But yeah, you know, one one race every half an hour at the meeting, then, you know, a spin every 30 seconds. Yeah. No. Do you think, Neil, the BHA have done enough regard, regards this for horse racing? Seem very quiet on the issue. I think that they would argue, I don't know exactly what they're doing, but I, I, well, I do know that they speak to DS, DC, DCMS, the Department of Culture and Ministry, and um, whatever it is, DCMS, they speak to them all the time. And they would probably say that they're doing their lobbying behind the scenes. I've heard a few rumours this week, because, I mean, there has been a big rumour, which is definitely true, that the the whole white paper is going to be pushed back, mostly because the government are feeling like politically it's not a great time to be doing anything controversial. And they would like other stuff, number 10 and whatever, to kind of quieten down before they do anything that might piss people off so we could be looking at a couple couple more weeks delay and chris philp has been moaning apparently that every mb in parliament seems to want to have a meeting with him and it's really taking up his time and actually that's because people are people in the racing industry that's i'm not necessarily saying the bha but the racing post racing tv sky racing the horse race betters forum lots of different websites the bar stewards the betting emporium people have been contacting their MP and getting involved. And I think if you were a backbench MP that didn't really know much about gambling or the issues involved, you might have come into this thinking, well, I'm just going to side with those poor families of people that have killed themselves. And suddenly you're getting 10 to 1 ratio of letters from just normal punters saying, boiling my hobby here. You know, I think actually, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say, it's hard to see what the BHA have done but I think they must have done a good job because it wasn't that long ago that if they were betting and running on the affordability limits, I think £100 a month would have been matched at like 1.12 or something. Yeah. I wouldn't take 1000 to 1 now. I think it's been gubbed, gubbed. <laughs> you know, the APPG on problem gambling, there's been a few people quitting it, some of the Tories. And Carolyn Harris was guy last week on the racing debate. She was really making a big effort to say that she's only concerned about people losing their money on slots. Yeah, she. Well, that's, that's definitely not the way she was talking a year no, ago. No, she, she so was... I, in yeah. a lot of ways, I think, you know, I'm not bigging up the BHA. The BHA have definitely been a part of it in the background. But I, I think as a whole, racing fans, racing media, the racing industry has done a really good job. Yeah, I agree. Right, finally then, uh, to, to wrap up this 
certainly interesting discussion. Both of you, so either can go first. Um, go on, go to Matt, because I feel like I've talked too much. Yeah, it's just usual with, with you, Neil. That's basically, true. Basically, Matt, you're in charge of the white paper. We're talking football advertising. We're talking football shirt advertising. Everything listed on the recommended changes. What are you pro and against? Uh, uh, so I think I'm pro... A, an industry ombudsman and that's not an industry ombudsman to decide what people can and can't spend or what they can afford but just a body similar to I guess what IBAS are doing now but more of a body that people have to go to when things don't quite go right so they're not paying you out they've been unfair you've got some kind of body that you can go to and you can you can get some action taken you can get your money paid out you're not going to lose it they're not going to hold it and it, that will really hold the industry to account and, and improve public perception. A common theme throughout, the industry can't be trusted. I think making them accountable via an industry ombudsman will probably increase the trust amongst people gambling. And then I, I think the, the second thing is, again, back to affordability. I do support affordability. I, I think overall it will probably be a, a net good thing. What the levels are is up for debate. I'm going to go rogue and, and say that. I think it'll probably be around the £500 a month mark when it does come in. And I would put more emphasis, again, as I've mentioned, on the banks of doing something because I don't think they're doing enough um, at the moment. And I think they're probably the best placed to do more. Good stuff. Neil? I think there's a whole bunch of things that are supposed to be the biggest review of gambling legislation for a generation. I'm sure we won't have another gambling act until I'm dribbling more than usual and there's going to be so many things that they just don't talk about the gambling commission gives out licenses to companies who are based in malta based in gibraltar they could easily if this was america for certain you wouldn't get a license unless you're based in london and you pay your taxes in the uk like you would have to pay corporation tax in the uk and be based in the uk how can they be so keen to see all these companies dodge taxes i just think it's ridiculous dispute resolution I think IBAS is going to go. I think they're going to get rid of that as part of the review. I think they'll bring in an ombudsman. The ombudsman will probably be one of these more kind of commercial ombudsmen, kind of like the insurance ombudsman or something. It'll be a, a sort of off the peg. So it won't be a government body, I don't think. But they should sort out dispute resolution. I, I don't understand. Like in Vegas, the casinos get their license. They will have to have exactly the same rules. So you can't have these stupid things where one company voids the tennis match because they didn't play one game in the second set and the other one, the bet stands. People argue about it. It's ridiculous. Just all companies should have the same rules. It shouldn't be open to interpretation. And if there's a problem with the rules, you know, you contact the ombudsman. You don't go to the company and whine to them for months on end. Protection of funds. You know, we've got a situation now where gambling operators can decide what level of protection they offer. So you can have a, a company basically where the customer's funds is in the kitty. And if they go skint and go out of business, go bankrupt, the customer's funds go with them. Other places that you can have the medium range, you can choose that as an operator where the money's all insured. Uh, or you can be the top end where it's kept ring-fenced. How can the Gambling Commission allow that? That should be part of the law, that it's all ring-fenced and there's no chance of that happening. I, I just think the procedures, if, if we are going to have to bring in affordability, there shouldn't... A, a lot of times with the Gambling Commission, operators will tell you, they tell you to do things, they give you guidelines, but it's all open to interpretation. And then they get fined if they don't interpret it in the way the Gambling Commission would have liked them to. 
well, that just seems ridiculous. Like out, from the bookmaker's point of view, and that's led to them being a little bit too strict. I think some of them on this affordability when they've been doing it up until now. If the rules were all clearly stated and they knew exactly what they had to do and what would get them fined, I guess the downside of that is that it would tell people kind of how to get around it. So I think everything needs to be more open and transparent. I think the idea that the net deposits is the only way of measuring someone's gambling and whether they're a problem gambler is a little bit subjective. There's loads of other ways. You know, Matt spoke about some of them, deposits being declined, people spending too much time on the site, people betting on like 28 different kinds of sport in the same day, you know, things like that you can use to judge whether someone's a problem gambler just as much as you can affordability, I think. And maybe they should think about some of those ways. I mean, I'm sure what they're going to do is do all the easy things that they think they can tick off. So for, for 100%, the, the 101 that you can put in the centre of every union jack is that the lottery will go up to 18. They'll do something on the shirts in football. They'll ban advertising before a watershed, but they'll exclude horse racing from that. So it will save ITV racing. I think some of those things are just like pretty obvious and they'll just bring that in. I don't know. I mean, I would like them to do something on restrictions. I don't, I don't really like coming on podcasts and moaning about restrictions because I just think it's like moaning about the rain, really. But, uh, you know, <laughs> what do you expect companies to do there? I, I don't believe that betting companies should have to take every single bet they're offered from every single customer. But having said that, I do think they're bringing the industry into disrepute. I, I think restricting people to less than a pound or less than a fiver is just stupid. I think it should be a rule that if you can't lay someone a fiver, you can't keep their account open. You, you just have to close the account. I don't know. There's a few. No, excellent. That was superb from you two. We're going to wrap the, this show up now. We've exceeded our time limit, but there's plenty oh, certainly to, to chin, chin wag, and I hope you've enjoyed listening in. We'll certainly be back, back again with more of these as as the gambling review sort of takes place and takes shape. You won't be hearing the last of us, unfortunately. So thank you to Matt. Thank you to Neil. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Bye for now.